0: If anyone had any sympathy to give to Patty at any point uh, along this the last two months that they should extend it to her now because from the way I know Patty she, uh, she is sick, she's exhausted and she's being humiliated at the hands of a group of people that are determined not to let her get out of this alive. I had a dream about this place.
1: to episode 36 of Ghost Stories for the End of the World. Hope you're good. I am truly dreading getting into the 40s with this uh, show because I cannot pronounce the word 40 um, with my accent. 40, that's how we usually say it around here. Anyway, this is the next installment in our Hollywood Ghost Stories uh, series within a series. Um, And this is kind of what we're doing to tie off Season of the Witch, a sort of lateral approach to the Manson family and the Cielo Drive massacre. So last episode, we looked at Operation Chaos by way of setting up how likely or not it was that Charles Manson and the family were somehow assets for a much larger, murkier, and stranger plot to infiltrate and destroy the counterculture. We looked at the lengths to which the CIA and the FBI went in order to disrupt and neutralize the left, and then we went deep on chaos itself. And we paid particular attention to the influence of the overseas operations like uh, the Phoenix Programme. on the CIA's domestic activities. So check that out if you haven't already, because we also set up a few other threads that we'll be chasing in the final few episodes of um, Season of the Witch. Oh, and on Christmas Eve, I'll be putting up a special uh, festive edition of the show as well. So I'll be taking some listener questions and uh, talking about a couple of uh, spook stories that are relevant to this time of year. Um, Hopefully that'll make some nice easy listening while you you prep the turkey. That's not a euphemism. Tonight, we're going to be looking at a very intriguing, very weird tale, which is the kidnapping of Patty Hearst by the Symbionese Liberation Army. And the reason why I want to look at this in context of the Manson murders is because everyone thinks they know the story pretty well. And today it's treated as more of a kind of a curious historical footnote than anything else. So you have a, a... pretty young heiress, and she's kidnapped by a Maoist guerrilla cell, brainwashed into becoming a a revolutionary herself, and then she embarks on a crime spree that leads to an insane shootout with the LAPD and the death of virtually the entire SLA. And eventually, Patty is arrested and sent to jail um, about a year and a half afterwards. Uh, And you know, obviously American public opinion is divided over whether she was a helpless victim or a willing participant, and the media absolutely laps the whole thing up. They can't get enough of it. But the thing is, when you go a little deeper into it, you uncover some very, very spooky background information that um, to my mind seems to confirm that the SLA was an op, and the, the apocalyptic denouement to the story in all likelihood, I think that that was part of a a much larger plan. And it's relevant, especially to us, because if you know where to look, you will find a lot of eerie echoes of the Manson family in what happened with the SLA. And we can think of these similarities almost as uh, fingerprints, DNA evidence, traces of the the intelligence operatives behind uh, the SLA. I think it's significant that the kidnapping and the SLA's crime spree happened when they did, uh, relatively soon after the Manson murders in Altamont, right in the middle of um, what we jokingly called the American Years of Lead back in um, part one of this miniseries with Matt Chrisman. And it also served as as yet another nail in the coffin of the radical counterculture, you know, at a time when even Watergate and a broadly anti-war sentiment was failing to arrest a kind of ongoing shift to the right in American politics. So while I've been pretty clear that I, you know, I can't prove anything concrete about Manson um, and that we can only put calls in the official narrative and ask a lot of questions, I'm a little bit more comfortable saying uh, the SLA and the Patty Hearst story in general, at least to my mind, is much less ambiguous what was going on here. I think it'll be useful to look at this story with the Tate-LaBianca murders in mind and use this episode to try and add some clarity and maybe glean some insight into the thinking of the intelligence community at the time. And we'll start with a, a quick recap of the life of Donald DeFries up to the moment that he became the leader of the SLA. And what struck me initially through reading accounts of the people who knew him is that he was almost startlingly unassuming. Uh, For most of his life, he was a fairly antisocial, quiet, uncharismatic guy who nobody ever imagined would end up becoming the leader of an underground militant group that was bent on revolution. Um, He didn't have the force of personality of an Eldridge Cleaver or a Hugh Newton. He wasn't especially intimidating or physically imposing. He was generally a learner. And had he not discovered the work of George Jackson while he was doing time, his life might never have taken the strange turn that it did. So... Donald was born in Cleveland in 1943 and he was the oldest of eight kids. Uh, His mother was a nurse and his dad was a violent drunk. Uh, He beat Donald with hammers and baseball bats for extremely minor infractions and he broke both his arms on three separate occasions. Then at 14, Don ran away from home and fetched up in Buffalo. Uh, He lodged with a fundamentalist pastor called Reverend William Foster, whose fire and brimstone sermons would influence the speechifying during his radical period. And he also joined a local street gang, and then he fell into a life of of petty crime. Finally wound up doing time in a juvenile facility for car theft. He was released when he turned 18 and he married a woman called Gloria Thomas. Now Gloria had three kids from a previous relationship. And for a time, DeFries tried to make a go of it um, as a, a, a straight guy, you know, he became an interior decorator and then he founded a firm, but it went bust and the family wound up trying to get by on, on welfare. So pretty soon, you know, he was desperate to pay the bills and he was feeling trapped in an unhappy marriage. So DeFries began dabbling in small time scams again. He would disappear for days and sometimes weeks at a time. And he was rumored to have embarked on low stakes burglaries in his neighborhood. And he was known to crack open parking meters after dark. Uh, he set off a homemade bomb by accident in the basement of his house in New Jersey in 1965. It's not clear where he learned how to make bombs. Um, when the cops came to you know, inspect the scene, they found a second unexploded homemade bomb Um, and they arrested him. And he was indicted, and he was later arrested again for carrying another homemade bomb. And while he was out on bail, out of the clear blue sky, DeFries decided the family should move to Los Angeles. And the cops apparently made very little effort to chase him down. And after the family arrived in LA, DeFries began a gun trafficking operation, and he supplied high-end pistols and rifles to street gangs and members of the, the Black Panther Party. And it has never been satisfactorily explained where this firepower came from, or how he happened to um, go from cracking up on parking meters to selling guns to you know organized crime outfits and the Black Panthers. <clears throat> he also uh, struck up a business relationship with Ron Karenga, who was the leader of the United Slaves Organization, which. Uh, had been infiltrated by COINTELPRO agents and used to attack Black Panthers at um, UCLA, as we discussed uh, last episode. Now, the money from these sidelines didn't really lift the pressures on Defries and his family. And in fact, Gloria had Defries arrested for desertion shortly after they arrived in California. And then a little while later, he was arrested again. The cops picked him up while he was hitchhiking on the San Bernardino freeway. And when they searched him, they found a homemade tear gas bomb, a knife, and a sawn-off shotgun. And the police repeatedly letting guys like this go, you know, guys on probation who are committing pretty heavy crimes. Well, that's something we talked about last episode, and it's part of a pattern that listeners of this show will be well familiar with by now. Some more arrests and mysterious releases followed And from the New York Times, uh, a long piece, long form piece about the freeze uh, from May 17th, 1974, quote, Mr. DeFreeze remained on probation despite a series of encounters with the police. These included arrests for possession of weapons, a kidnapping charge in New Jersey, and an attempted bank robbery in Cleveland. Then he got into a gunfight with Los Angeles police and bank cards in late 1969. On June 9, 1967, the police stopped Mr. DeFreeze for running a red light on his bicycle. He gave a false name. The police discovered a homemade bomb in his pockets and in the basket of the bike, another bomb and a pistol. He said he'd found them and was attempting to sell them. He received three years probation. While this case was ongoing, he was arrested again in December of the same year for threatening a prostitute with a gun and demanding money from her. Arriving at a motel to investigate, the police found a pistol stolen from a store in nearby Torrance and more stolen weapons in the trunk of his car. Mr. DeFreeze took the police to his home, but escaped by jumping from a second-story window. He was recaptured four days later. This time, he led the police to his accomplice, a man named Ronald Coleman, where they found nearly 200 weapons stolen from an army surplus store. Now, that last part about the surplus store, that's actually incorrect. Um, the guns had actually been stolen from a military supply depot, which that raises a host of questions that we don't really have time to answer. Um, The most obvious one being, how the fuck? Um, So DeFreeze escaped a prison sentence because of his uh, cooperation. And then strong rumors at the time started to spread, uh, indicating that he was by this point a paid informant for the LAPD's criminal conspiracy section. And a court psychologist described him as, emotionally confused and conflicted with deep-rooted feelings of inadequacy. And as we know by now, this kind of emotional damage, together with you know a background of abuse and incarceration and a decent working knowledge of the criminal underworld. Um, this is all what we might think of as the textbook raw material of an ideal informant, uh, someone prime. For being exploited by law enforcement and um, maybe, just maybe, the intelligence community. So, in October of 1969, he was caught on the roof of a bank in Cleveland, Ohio, with guns and a burglar's toolkit. Uh, he paid a $5,000 bond and returned to Los Angeles, where he had the shootout with the cops that we mentioned and based on an assessment that he may be at high risk of developing schizophrenia. He's finally sent to the California Medical Facility in uh, Vacaville. Now there may have been an ulterior motive here, which we'll get into in a second. Um, And also not to get all Dave McGowan, uh, but I'd be remiss if I didn't point out that um, this facility in Vacaville is also where Bobby Boussole of the Manson family Ed Kemper, the serial killer, Charles Manson himself, and Timothy Leary have all uh, spent time. And we should also note that shortly after Defries arrived there uh, in 1969, a prosecutor in New Jersey advised against doing him for the attempted kidnapping of a synagogue caretaker because the prosecutor had received word that Defries was already in jail. So it's almost like they were trying to avoid adding any more time to his sentence, you know. Now, Vacaville is where things begin to get even stranger. And to understand why, we now need to pivot to a guy called Colston Westbrook. Now, by 1969, Westbrook was 33 years old and a teaching assistant on an African-American studies program at Berkeley. And he subsequently volunteered as a tutor for the Black Cultural Association, which was a prison outreach project that met twice a week at Vacaville. Now the Black Cultural Association was ostensibly there to provide African-American inmates an education and you know everything, ranging from mathematics to the sciences to linguistics. So Westbrook, in actual fact, was much more than just an idealistic teacher. Um, he had a, a remarkable gift for linguistics, and he'd been an honor student at Contra Costa College in San Pablo. This got him picked to travel to Rome as part of Eisenhower's people-to-people student ambassador program. And thereafter, Westbrook joined the army, then the Air Force, and he taught English in Tokyo after his military service and was recruited as a personnel administrator by a defense contractor called Pacific Architects and Engineers. Pacific Architects was a subsidiary of Pacific Corporation. Um, and that company is based in Delaware, and it was earned outright 100% by the CIA. It was one of a number of CIA fronts used as another way to funnel money from the US government into the agency. Westbrook, in his capacity as a personnel administrator, was assigned to work for Pacific Architects in Vietnam. And his key role there was to provide logistical support and act as a translator for operatives assigned to the Phoenix program. Um, And in a standard move, at one time, Westbrook was relatively okay with admitting his role over there. But in later years, he downplayed his connection to the program. And finally, he started to deny having knowledge of ever working for the CIA at all. So Westbrook kind of abruptly resigned his post in Vietnam in 1968, and he returned to the States. And initially, he worked for the LAPD in their criminal conspiracy section and Sacramento's criminal identification intelligence division. And one of his main tasks was recruiting informants and assets in the Black Power movement. And it has been suggested that he first encountered Donald Defries here in the LAPD CCS. Uh, after the LAPD that's when westbrook went to berkeley so we've hit one of those maddening impasses here where we can't say for sure what was actually going on but we can we can draw on what we've learned about how intelligence operatives work to you know reasonably infer a few things so first we have to ask can we see any lines and patterns emerging here because We think then about rule number two of this show. Uh, The first rule, of course, is don't get captured. Rule number two is there is no such thing as an ex-spy. Once you're in it, you're in it for life. And here we have a young, gifted, black intelligence operative suddenly walking away from an extremely lucrative overseas job for a CIA front to work first as an intelligence agent for the LAPD, itself compromised by the CIA, then abruptly leave in for Berkeley. Berkeley, which is the white hot center of the counterculture at this point, it's right in the eye of the storm and it's just as chaos and COINTELPRO are really starting to ramp up. And chaos, of course, was influenced in large part by the phoenix program and it was overseen by an agency which had thoroughly penetrated a number of institutions in california by this point and this by the way this is also while it was also the agency was also overseeing reagan's program of domestic repression against the left uh, on his special task force and then remember also that a key project of chaos was to recruit Quote, again, assets in the peace and black power movements. And what else was Westbrook up to at this point? He'd volunteered for a prison outreach program at the CMF in Vacaville, just as the FBI and the CIA were beginning to agree, in an odd way, with the radical left's view that imprisoned African-Americans were potential leaders of a revolutionary vanguard. So we'd be remiss if we didn't point out another few odd tidbits here. The first of which is that um, radical political organizing and the study of guerrilla warfare weren't supposed to become the dominant strands of the BCA's educational work. And in fact, ostensibly, it was there to guide uh, black inmates away from that kind of thing, but become the dominant strands they eventually did. And it's extraordinarily strange that this happened under the stewardship of a former military officer and CIA contractor. And in parallel with this, would it shock you to learn that Vacaville, through its maximum psychiatry diagnostic unit, was also the site of a number of MKUltra experiments with drugs, psychological conditioning, and brain surgery carried out largely on black prisoners, specifically those with mental illnesses. And who became the secretary of the Vacaville Black Cultural Association, you might ask. Why Donald David DeFries did, of course. DeFries, who had likely already had contact with Westbrook as an informer for the LAPD and had already been flagged by the system as a schizoid personality with a deep sense of inadequacy and a risk of developing schizophrenia. So Defries came to Marxism in Vacaville and he started to apply it to his own life. So he read Lenin and Mao and Che Guevara and underwent something like a, a religious conversion, you know, don't we all? Um, Westbrook himself admitted in later years that he became pretty close to Defries, but he took care to emphasize in his words, quote, Don was a racist. He hated white people with a passion. Now, this is a peculiar comment in context of Westbrook's other role as the BCA's outside guest coordinator, uh, in which he'd encouraged a range of visitors that he knew from around Berkeley, mostly you know white liberal colleagues and students, to stop by BCA meetings. And one of these outside guests was Willie Wolfe. Now, Wolfe was from a middle-class Connecticut family. His dad was quite a famous physician in his time. And he'd moved to Berkeley to study anthropology. Um, he took Black linguistics uh, as a second class. Um, and this was a, a class taught by Carlston Westbrook, which is where Westbrook encouraged Wolf's interest in prisoners' rights. And he eventually started to help out with these prison study groups. Uh, and then, you know, he spread the word about the BCA to his friends on campus and in radical circles. Now, Westbrook, despite Supposedly believing that uh, De Vries was a racist, he made a point of introducing De Vries and Wolfe to each other, and Wolfe would go on to join the Simbini's Liberation Army and became a very close friend of De Vries. So De Vries was supposedly kicked out of the BCA eventually for his growing radicalism, but he was still given a completely free hand to set up his own group for his fellow prisoners, and he called this group Unisite. Now, A private investigator called Lake Headley. uh, We're going to come back to him again and again throughout the episode. He contacted a number of people who'd done time at Vacaville with the freeze. And one of them said this, quote, the freezes group had it pretty good. They had no security on them at all, which we all found baffling and incomprehensible and more than a little suspicious. They even fucked some of the female visitors at those unisite meetings and the guards did not give a shit. At all. Those uh, female visitors that he's referring to are a number of um, white liberal uh, Berkeley students who considered themselves, you know, a part of the radical counterculture. And they'd started to visit the Unisite meetings on quite a regular basis. And DeFries and his group had inexplicably been given access to a number of trailers to host these meetings with these ladies that were usually reserved for conjugal visits. And among these visitors, were Nancy Perrin and Patricia Solchik, who would, they become members of the SLA. And another visitor was the very mysterious Mary Alice Seams, who was an 18-year-old Berkeley student and, rather strangely, another heiress. Um, Now, tracking down much information about her has been fairly difficult, but I've gathered that she was the girlfriend of the only other black member of the SLA, uh, Thera Wheeler, and he'd supposedly been an ex-special forces operator in Vietnam, but I've I've had trouble confirming this. Seems Mary Alice seems dropped out of Berkeley at some point during her first semester. But here's where it gets weird because um, she actually moved away from Berkeley, but she's still on the prison records as having returned to Vacaville time and again to visit Donald Defries. And when Lake Headley looked into this. SEAMS would be identified by several guards and former inmates at Vacaville as actually being Patty Hurst using SEAMS ID papers to sign into the prison. They looked very similar to each other. Um, now, because of this, it's possible these witnesses were mistaken, but they were adamant that they weren't. Um, and if this is true, it completely throws the official narrative out of whack because Patty Hurst always maintained that she didn't know who Donald DeFries or the SLA were prior to her kidnapping. And yet here she is years before it visiting Donald DeFries and uh, with the, the nucleus of what would become the SLA. Now, Defries was eventually transferred from Vacaville to Soldad Prison uh, in 1970, uh, more or less the same time as Colston Westbrook quit his work with the BCA due to what he called the uh, commie infiltrators who'd taken over the program. But remember that he'd invited most of these commie infiltrators in the first place, knowing full well what their politics were. DeFries restarted his uh, Unisite group in Soledad, and by now he had a couple of followers in the form of Willie Wolf and Thera Wheeler. And he'd also attracted a few disciples on the inside as well, uh, while his uh, his visits from Perry, Salchik, and possibly Patty Hurst resumed. Um, and so did this favourable treatment from the guards. And one inmate, uh, the self-anointed General Khan, who'd known to freeze in San Francisco and initially served as a field commander in this embryonic version of the SLA while he was in prison, he told Lake Headley, quote, I looked in his locker one day and he had bottles of this drug called Eferol, which the shrinks would give inmates to pacify them and make them easier to control. Nobody voluntarily took that shit, but he was popping them like they were candy. Now, I'd always read that DeFreeze was the founder of the SLA on the outside uh, of Soledad um, and that the group was formed, you know, in um, Oakland. But according to the journalist Paul Krasner and Donald Freed, it was actually a pre existing prison outfit. It was a kind of loose association of. Um, radicalized uh, inmates in Soledad that it simply didn't have a name until the freeze came along. It's kind of a little tangled and weird is this, so I'll, I'll try to unpick the story. But from what I understand, the proto SLA in Soledad had been born out of a union between members of the Venturemos organization and the Soledad branch of the Black Cultural Association. Now, the BCA, we'll remember, was run um, largely by Colston Westbrook, who we've already established his very strange connections to intelligence. Vencheremos was initially inspired by South American guerrilla movements. And it believed that um, America's prison population was an untapped reservoir of revolutionary potential. Uh, But by 1970, Vencheremos had also been thoroughly penetrated by informants working for both the FBI and the CIA under COINTELPRO and CHAOS, respectively. And it was about to collapse under the weight of factional infighting and legal troubles stemming from an attempt they made to bust a radical called Ron Beatty out of prison that resulted in the death of a guard and Beatty turning state's witness to avoid being sent back to jail. The Soledad organization that came from the union between Venturemos, the BCA, and Donald DeFries's unicite, you know, in the, the latter part of its existence, this is what would become the SLA in uh, Oakland. Um, and it functioned for a short time, more like a, a prison gang with a, a vaguely defined leftist ideology and a small, ever-rotating membership that was viewed with suspicion by other uh, inmates. And DeFries became a kind of de facto leader of this, this group. Now, Rusty Rhodes, who he founded the Committee to Investigate Political Assassinations, um, him, Lake Headley, and Donald Freed, They all talked to former inmates at Soledad who suggested that this outfit was seen as early as 1970 as some kind of front. You know, it was used by prison administrators and police to gather intelligence and build cases against politically active prisoners. Some of them even claimed that in extreme cases, SLA members had been used to perform hits inside on half a dozen occasions and they'd received special privileges. Uh, As compensation. Now, whatever the particulars of this, both Lake Headley and Donald Freed have stated that they have found evidence indicating that Patty Hearst was donating money to this group and defrees's Unicide Fallout fully two years before she was kidnapped. Uh, Now, these were small sums relative to her family's immense wealth, but word of her flirtation with the counterculture had made them nervous enough to. Um, send her anxious messages about protecting the family's good name and so on and so forth, her parents. Now, remember that the Hearst dynasty is one of the wealthiest and most politically influential in America right up to this day. And it it had a reputation at the time as being Ferociously anti-communist. Uh, in twenty twenty, Forbes pegged their wealth at twenty one billion dollars. Uh, the twelfth wealthiest family in America, and the Hearst Corporation owns a dizzying array of ah uh, media properties from ESPN to Cosmo Magazine. So it'd be easy to say that Patty was kind of the the quintessential rebel without cause. You know that she was a a textbook case of the rich brat who wanted to spend a few years acting the part of the, the family radical before sliding into a, a comfortable no-show job after college and learning the ways of the idle rich. And, you know, I'm totally going to say that is true. But her, her commitment to the bit were strong enough that there had been much gossip in society circles about the new friends that she was making at college. And there were rumors during the rounds that she'd even started seeing a, a black student in her art history class uh, behind the back of her fiance, Stephen Weed. And, and this was much to the shame and embarrassment of her parents. Now, I actually think that on some level, she was probably genuinely sympathetic to the cause of, you know, the black power movement and the plight of the poor. Um, In a sworn deposition, Headley stated that he'd uncovered evidence that beyond donating money and attending the prison outreach meetings at Vacaville and Soledad, she'd also offered to buy what would become the SLA, uh, guns and ammunition, and find somewhere to store it all. And this would be for when DeFries finally got out of jail and was ready to form a group in the civilian world. But, you know, when we're dealing with the rich you always have to remember that they know they can always just choose to leave a scene, you know, if it, it starts feeling too heavy for them. Now, one of the note from this period uh, to mention uh, is something that General Khan told Headley, which is that Patti had met several times alone with De Vries at Soledad and discussed some kind of kidnapping scheme. And according to Khan, the targets were going to be Patty's two younger sisters, uh, Vicky and Anne. And the idea would be to spirit them away to Colorado and demand a ransom of tens of millions of dollars. And when Defries suggested that they could get even more money if Patty agreed to be kidnapped as well, she dropped the subject. And Khan says that he found out about this because he walked into a prison meeting room one day and found Defries and a prison guard, a Lieutenant James Nelson. Um, discussing the plan. So anyway, uh, De Vries escaped from Soledad in March of 1973, although escaped is possibly overstating it. Uh, he was actually just reassigned to South Soledad, uh, which is a much lower security facility, or was. And then he simply walked out of the grounds after his guard left uh, for lunch break, for an hour lunch break. And intriguingly, you know, after this, both Khan and another inmate called Damion Tamita have said in sworn statements that they were also offered the same wink wink nudge nudge type of transfer, and the understanding was that once they'd escaped, they were to find Donald DeFries and join the group he'd formed on the outside, and both of them refused and they were this offer was made to them by higher ups at Soledad prison, and in August. Theo Whelan also walked out of Vacaville after being entrusted to mind a baseball pitch outside the walls, and he hooked up with DeFreeze in Oakland. So after his escape, um, <clears throat> DeFreeze had been hidden by uh, all these white radicals who'd attended the outreach meetings at Vacaville and Soledad. And he eventually started living with uh, Patricia Solchik, uh, who rechristened herself Ms. Moon. With Defries adopting the name Cinque uh, after uh, Joseph Cinque, who was the leader of the slave rebellion on the Amistad. And the Symbionese Liberation Army was officially formed here and gradually the roster you know, filled out. So there was Camilla Hall, uh, an artist. There was Joseph Ramirez, a Vietnam veteran. There was William and Emily Harris, Russell Little, William Wolfe, Nancy Ling Perry, Michael Barton, and James Kilgore. Now, there may be some more that I'm forgetting, so apologies. But yeah, they they all adopted new Swahili names, and their motto, you know, was "Death to the fascist insect that preys upon the life of the people." And with the exception of Defreeze and Thera Wheeler, the membership was entirely white and middle class. And after a few meetings with Defreeze and the SLA, Wheeler correctly judged that something was deeply wrong with the group and its leader. Um, he considered the in his own words, a drunken fool and a fantasist. Uh, he thought that the SLA as a whole was completely detached from reality. Um, he mentioned that one plan they were toying with entailed stealing a nuclear weapon from a military base and then ransoming it back to the US government. And if the government didn't pay the ransom, detonating it in downtown LA. Um, another idea they came up with. Uh, involved assassinating a number of Black Panthers around California due to their ideological softness. Uh, And Wheeler couldn't quite shake his suspicion that something more was going on than he was being led to believe. Um, The question he asked himself that he kept returning to time and time again, the question that we should be asking ourselves is what kind of leftist revolutionary forms what will amount to a death squad that for all intents and purposes is doing the work of the CIA and the FBI. Time, the SLA was mostly just an exercise in branding more than anything else. Uh, DeFries and Mizmoon had filled notebooks with intricate rules and procedures governing life in the group, and they settled on the fascist insect motto as well. Uh, their logo, and even the name Symbionese Liberation Army, was it was partly inspired by a Sam Greenlee novel called The Spook Who Sat by the Door. Greenlee uses the word symbiology to denote Separate organisms living together in harmony, uh, which is where Defries developed the word symbionies from. Uh, I highly recommend you read this book if you haven't already. Um, first, because it's great, and also because the subject matter feels so on the nose in context of Donald Defries and Colston Westbrook and the SLA that it feels almost like Don was subconsciously trying to communicate something here. Because without spoiling too much. The story is about a black CIA agent called Dan Freeman uh, based on Greenlee himself. Who grows disillusioned working for the system and uses his training as an intelligence operator to become a revolutionary in Chicago. And like the Weather Underground, uh, the SLA would hold daily weapons drills and exercised as a group. Uh, they held orgies to break down their inhibitions. They dropped acid in communal trips and they subjected each other to all day, you know, self crit lecturing sessions. But the problem was that it was 1973 and the trail of bodies that had been left in the wake of COINTELPRO and chaos that was still piling up, even, and the suspicion and paranoia that was rife at this point, the ongoing meltdown of the Panthers and the left more broadly, and the disillusion that had been brought on by Watergate, the Pentagon Papers, and the failure of, of the 60s in general. This had all added to a general feeling of malaise and exhaustion. The brightest and best of the movement had all variously being killed or imprisoned, fallen into drug use, gone underground or moved on to positions in academia and the nonprofit sector. Um, by and large, the only people who still sincerely believed that a violent revolution against the U.S. system was not only imminent, but winnable. They, they were kind of the dregs of the counterculture at this point. They were the lost souls, you know, the burnouts and the drifters who were they're kind of looking for something to give their lives a sense of purpose. And apart from these true believers, very few people were in the mood to listen to this bizarre ragtag group of white revolutionaries led by this strange ex-con. And on top of all this, The few people who even knew who Donald DeFries was outside of the SLA were all also well aware of the rumors that had been doing the rounds about him for years, you know, regarding his links to the LAPD intelligence division and possibly even the CIA. And they were extremely suspicious of DeFries and the SLAs over overly keen almost desperate attempts to sell them guns and drugs and bombs and enlist them in in what they referred to as revolutionary activity, which usually involved, you know, violence of some kind. Now, there's pretty strong evidence that back in the BCA days at Vacaville, Westbrook and Defries had made a habit of criticizing the Black Panthers and they tried to dissuade inmates from becoming members of the party quite forcefully as well. Um, it wasn't just trying to Gently steer them away from the Panthers. They had made overt, quite aggressive attempts to keep inmates away from the party. And according to Headley sources, DeFreeze himself had drawn up several plans to assassinate Huey Newton while he was at Soledad, uh, while DeFreeze was at Soledad. Now, these stories had all spread through underground circles in advance of his escape from the prison. So he was widely viewed as some kind of Asian provocateur, you know. And in keeping with this, the generally scattershot and ideologically incoherent nature of the SLA, their first action in November of 1973 was the assassination of a guy called Marcus Foster, who was the first black superintendent of schools in Oakland. Now, he was shot with cyanide-tipped bullets, and their motive for the hit was Foster's support for a student ID card system. Now, if the had been trying to kind of allay fears that the SLA was some kind of fed op, this was a very strange way to go about it. And the reaction from his fellow revolutionaries was mostly revulsion, not the weather underground. They stayed quiet because, you know, they, did, they wanted to see what the Panthers and other black militants would say first. The Panthers, for their part, issued a, a condemnation of the murder. And the SLA sent out their first communique on November 6th, taking credit for the hit and trying to defend what they'd done. Now, the communique uh, billed itself as being from the Symbionese Liberation Army Regional Youth Unit. And it said, quote, This attack is to serve notice that the Board of Education and its fascist elements have come to the attention of the court of the people and have been found guilty of supporting and taking part in crimes committed against the children and the life of the people. Cooler heads have noted though in hindsight that Foster had actually publicly withdrawn his support for the ID card program well before the murder and moreover He'd been preparing to implement some reforms of the local education system that he'd developed in consultation with the Black Panthers. So again, why was the SLA's first action something that would have been entirely in line with the goals of the CIA and the FBI? Eventually, the cops picked up Russell Little and Joseph Romero for the murder in January of 1974, and it was after this arrest that DeFries decided to go ahead with the next action. Now, I should point out here that when I say the freeze was making certain decisions, you know, take that in context of everything we've discussed so far and treat it with the caution that it deserves. So on February 4th, uh, 1974, the SLA kidnapped Patty Hearst from her apartment in Berkeley. Uh, Now, in Patty's telling of the story, her fiance, uh, Stephen Weed, He was beaten with the butt of a rifle while two masked SLA members dragged her out to a getaway van. And in light of the sources who said that the initial plan was to kidnap Patty's younger sisters, consider that Stephen Weed later said that she was screaming, Oh God, not me. Why me? As they marched her to the van. Uh, So take that for what it's worth. There are other versions of the story where he's supposed to have said that she said, It wasn't supposed to be me. So anyway, in the communique that they issued uh, three days after the kidnapping, the SLA declared that Patty Hearst was a a prisoner of war and they were looking to ransom her back in exchange for the release of uh, Little and Romero. And when this turned out to be a non-starter, on the 12th of February, they sent a recording of Patty reading a new set of demands, which included distributing $70 worth of food to every poor person in the Bay Area. And in classic, you know, rich guy style, Randolph Hearst, um, Patty's dad, offered $2 million uh, by way of a, a counter offer. <clears throat> so, you know, we have shades of the Getty kidnapping there. Um, the distribution process initially descended into chaos uh, with a number of uh, NGOs, I suppose, uh, aid groups and social work groups kind of offering to pitch in and lend a hand. Um, None other than Jim Jones actually offered to put the People's Temple to work, handing out the food. And he also offered a, a $2,000 donation to the Ransom Fund. And in Patty's account of her time in captivity, uh, she says that while this was going on, she was being subjected to you know repeated rapes and force-fed LSD uh, by the SLA. And finally, she was given the choice of leaving the group or joining them. And she suspected that if she chose to leave, that was as good as signing her own death warrant. So we should probably pause here uh, before we go any further and think about why we're discussing this case, Um, which is to help us perhaps understand what purpose the Manson family might have served. And we should maybe remind ourselves about something that we discussed a while back. Uh, This was during American tabloid, if I'm not mistaken. Um, part five or six. If I recall correctly, we talked about the idea of intelligence operations deranging. Um, and that is to say that after a certain amount of time in the shadows, you know, building in complexity, unmoored from all scrutiny and oversight, intelligence ops inevitably they seem to slip the leash and spiral out of control. Uh, we looked at the Bay of Pigs, the Brabant killers couple of incidents from the years of Laird, Iran, Contra, so on and so forth. Um, and we considered that they were possible examples of this, this derangement in action. And JFK would be, you know, the big kahuna of them all. So I'd now like to add the SLA and the kidnapping of Patty Hearst to that list. Not to get too far off on a tangent, but... There are two uh, broad takes on conspiracy as a concept for people who are interested in in what we might call deep politics. You know? The basic and incorrect one, in my opinion, is that conspiracies are always directed from the top down and that every step of a plot is always carefully guided and directed. Um, the other, the one that I tend to cleave to, is that things are more chaotic and fluid than that. If you imagine that they're operations like any other, you know, what you find is that it's a series of delegations um, between discrete actors. It's it's, uh, networks of compartmentalized information, clashing egos, conflicting agendas. And all of this contributes to an overall plot, but many of the players often have only the most basic comprehension of what that overall plot is. And that's if they have any comprehension at all, you know. There is a goal, there is some kind of objective, but only a few select people understand the full scope of any given operation. Beyond that, you're looking at chains of intermediaries and middlemen all the way down, assets, informers and the like. Now this is obviously speculation on my part, but in the case of the SLA, I'm sure that guys like Westbrook and whatever chaos agents were embedded with the LAPD and to monitor the operation. I'm sure that they were the only people who really understood what the full plan here actually was. But it's fair to say that it involved using the SLA and Donald DeFries to, you know, disrupt, discredit, and marginalize what was left of the left at that point. So with something like the SLA, I think that. Donald DeFries was always viewed as disposable um, and he got out of control before they were ready to dispose of him. I think that he was intended to be used as a way to discredit the Black Power movement, you know, and help bury the counterculture forever. Uh, That much seems obvious, but at some point, he unwittingly overstepped the limits of this role. Now, I don't quite know when this moment was. It definitely wasn't planning the murders of Black Panthers or the hit on Foster. Uh, I don't necessarily think it was the kidnapping and supposed brainwashing of Patty Hearst either, because if anything, she served as a, a brilliant horror story to sell to anxious parents and young people who were flirting with you know, radical politics. The entire case triggered a media shitstorm and I'm sure that the FBI and the CIA were more than happy with how everything was playing out there. So what I think, and I can't prove any of this, of course, I don't want to get too far into, you know, the weeds or tinfoil territory, but I think that if there was a moment that DeFries actually sealed his own fate, it was the communique that he issued on April the 3rd, the one in which Patty Hearst declared her loyalty to the revolution and rechristened herself Tanya uh, after the, uh, the KGB agent who'd fought with Shea uh, Guevara. Now, this isn't what doomed the freeze. What I think put a target on him was the part of the tape where he openly declared that Colston Westbrook was a military intelligence officer and therefore a legitimate target in the SLA's guerrilla campaign. I think that they, whoever they were, looked at this, heard this and thought, if he knows this much and he's exposing this much, what else might he spill before this is all over? So on April the 15th the, uh, the SLA robbed the bank in Hibernia And this is the famous heist where uh, Patty is seen waving around an M1 Carbine, I believe that's the gun She's wearing a black beret and a Black uh, coat She's barking orders at customers and staff as well um, She's screaming up against the wall Motherfuckers, you know And that, that CCTV footage Became iconic, became one of the most Iconic images of the era
0: On April 15th My comrades and I expropriated $10,660.02 from the Sunset Branch of the Hibernia Bank. Casualties could have been avoided had the persons involved cooperated with the People's Forces and kept out of the way until after our departure. I was positioned so that I could hold customers and bank personnel who were on the floor. My gun was loaded, and at no time did any of my comrades intentionally point their guns at me. Careful examination of the photographs, which were published, clearly shows this is true. Our action of April 15th forced the corporate state to help finance the revolution. As for my ex-fiancé, I don't care if I ever see him again. During the last few months, Stephen has shown himself to be a sexist, ageist pig. Not that this was a sudden change from the way he always was. For those people who still believe that I am brainwashed or dead, I see no reason to further defend my position. Consciousness is terrifying to the ruling class, and they will do anything to discredit people who have realized that the only alternative to freedom is death. And that the only way we can free ourselves of this fascist dictatorship is by fighting, not with words, but with guns. I am a soldier in the People's Army. Patria o muerte, venceremos.
1: Then after the robbery, they split for Los Angeles because DeFries abruptly claimed that the FBI were on the verge of discovering their safe house. William Wolfe's dad hired Lake Headley around this time, uh, the private detective. He wanted him to dig up more information about the SLA and Patty Hearst and their activities, and this is where he came into the picture, this private investigator. And much of what he discovered about their uh, spooky connections, um, you know, we've already discussed. But on May the 4th, Headley filed a, a sworn affidavit detailing what he found, and then held a press conference with Donald Freed. And they presented nearly 400 pages of painstakingly gathered evidence that detailed the SLA's extremely suspicious links to Westbrook, the LAPD, and the CIA, together with Patty's pre-existing relationship with the BCA, Unicite, and DeFries himself. Now, the New York Times had prepared a long-form piece detailing all of this, and they were all primed and ready to publish it on May the 17th. But the story never quite made the splash that it should have done because May 17th is also the day that an anonymous tip-off somewhat conveniently led the LAPD to the SLA's safe house. And the mind can't help but speculate here and wonder if someone at the NYT, someone on the agency payroll, we know that there were a, a lot of people on the payroll in the media at this point, maybe they possibly tipped off the cops about you know what was coming so the footage of this two-hour firefight between the LAPD and the SLA is, is fucking terrifying and it was broadcast live and it completely dominated the news that day and in addition to the dozens of tear gas canisters that the cops shot into the house and the inferno That these caused. There were also about 11,000 rounds of ammunition fired. 6,000 of these came from the LAPD. And the entire assault was directed by the criminal conspiracy section, the intelligence division that DeFreeze had been an asset for and Colton Westbrook uh, had been a consultant for. Nancy uh, Perry and Camilla Hall were killed outside the house. The SLA members still inside took shelter in a a crawl space as the house burned down. Uh, They eventually burned to death, except for DeFries, who appeared to have shot himself in the head before the fire got him. And all in all, Six of the SLA died in the shootout. Uh, Nancy Perry, Camilla Hall, Donald DeFreeze, William Wolfe, Angela Atwood, and Patricia uh, Solitsik. Patty, along with William and Emily Harris, they'd been involved in a bot shoplifting sort at a sporting goods store the day before. And after Patty had opened fire on the storefront to keep the security guards at bay, they were hiding out in a motel in Anaheim. Uh, They saw the entire siege live on TV. Lake Headley was deeply unimpressed with what he'd seen from the LAPD. And at a meeting of the LA City Council, he presented a 14 page report in which he demolished the LAPD's narrative of what had happened. Rather than uh, acting on an anonymous tip off and returning fire in self defense, Headley said that the cops had known where the SLA safe house was for days and they'd had it under intense surveillance. So they could have snatched Patty Hurst anytime they liked. And Hedley also supplied footage from local reporters showing the cops using sniffer dogs to confirm that Patty wasn't at the house before they opened up on it and establishing a cordon that prevented fire crews from extinguishing the flames until the house had been completely destroyed. And then Hedley stated, quote, The CIA has infiltrated the LAPD and made the entire city a testing ground for police repression. City council members will not expose this because the LAPD Intelligence Division maintains detailed blackmail dossiers on city officials. And the city council blocked his attempt to forward his files to a grand jury. So after the siege, the the remnants of the SLA regrouped and went underground in the Bay Area. And they even found some new recruits who considered the LAPD siege a kind of a validation that the group was legit. Uh, and they they hopped from student house to student house. You know, they planning to assassinate cops and make more homemade bombs that they were going to plant, at uh, you know, valuable government targets. And then in April of 1975, they robbed a crocker bank in Carmichael. And this job resulted in the death of a woman called Myrna Lee Opsal. In September... The SLA was finally captured and almost immediately Patty flipped on her comrades and said that she'd been drugged with LSD and brainwashed by the SLA. Now here's where we see the outlines of some kind of machine kind of kicking into gear in what I think was an attempt to bring Patty back into the elite fold or affect some kind of cover-up. Because none other than Jolly West, MK Ultra specialist, was appointed by the court to work with Hearst to officially establish the extent to which she'd been brainwashed. All their meetings were held one-on-one in private, Uh, so it's not clear exactly what they discussed. But it's probably worth mentioning that the conditions that she was kept in when the SLA first snatched her don't actually sound too dissimilar to what the CIA was doing to its MKUltra test subjects. You know, she was held in a small, dark um, closet. She was force-fed LSD and speed, while being, you know, repeatedly psychologically and sexually abused and hectored and lectured with, you know, political rants and uh, struggle sessions, uh, stuff like that. Uh, and these sometimes lasted all day and night. You know, so she was being deprived of sleep as well. And it also doesn't sound too dissimilar to what Manson was doing to his own followers at Span Ranch. There are more eerie echoes is what I'm saying. And I should point out that court psychiatrists who examined her after the meetings with uh, Jolly West, people like Dr. Henry Kozal, they all reported that she had undergone a decrease in cognitive function and experienced recurring nightmares and memory lapses, but they could never be sure whether this was before or after she'd started her sessions with Jolly West. So F. Lee Bailey took over her defense. This story is insane. All the stars are here, man. (laughs) Uh, Bailey made a name for himself as a defense lawyer in high profile trials. Uh, He was the lawyer for Sam Shepard, who became the inspiration for The Fugitive. He also defended the Boston Strangler in 1964, then Ernest Medina, who was accused of sanctioning the Myli Massacre. And he'd eventually go on to be part of OJ Simpson's all-star defense team. And at Patty's trial... He was reported to appear either drunk or hungover almost every single day, and he made a number of very odd decisions that damaged her credibility in court, including ordering her to take the stand and plead the fifth on every question she was asked by the prosecution. So I'm wondering, and again, this is pure speculation, but was Jolly West there to make sure that she was having memory loss and that there were certain things about Donald that and the people that he'd been in contact with that she couldn't remember, was FLE Bailey there to make sure that she she would fuck her own defense up and she'd end up getting sent down and taken out of the picture. I don't know. Um, But in March of 1976, Patty was convicted of bank robbery and discharging a weapon, and she was sentenced to 35 years in prison. And then a number of odd things happened after she arrived in jail. Uh, She suffered a collapsed lung And then she found a dead rat and a death threat in her cell that prompted her to be moved to solitary for protection. And then a bomb exploded outside the Hearst family mansion. And thereafter, uh, she was granted bail um, and her dad hired uh, about a dozen bodyguards to watch her um, 24 hours a day. And in another very strange turn, the Congressman Leah Ryan set to work gathering signatures for a petition to have her sentence commuted and within a few weeks, he wound up being murdered while visiting the Jonestown settlement in Guyana. Uh, Jimmy Carter eventually pardoned her. Um, <clears throat> so we're kind of coming into in. But I should I should probably also briefly mention this idea again of a, a prison SLA uh, that a few people have investigated. Now, we said earlier that there was already a vaguely leftist political organization that existed in Soledad Prior to Donald DeFreeze arriving there. And, uh, you know, it was, it was born of these two groups that had united. Well, there was an inmate called Robert Hyde uh, at Soledad who um, spoke to Lake Headley and Rusty Rhodes. He said that what became the SLA was actually a much, much larger prison gang that had about 200 members spread across Soledad, Vacaville, and San Quentin. Hyde claimed that he'd been approached by uh, prison officers to help recruit snitches for this group. Shortly after he told, Hedley and Rhodes this. They approached Soledad's warden for comment, who denied any knowledge of it. And a few weeks later, um, Hyde was blinded when someone replaced his eye drops with acid. Uh, He was then transferred to Vacaville a week ahead of Hedley meeting with him again. And When a congressman called Ronald Dellums tried to speak to Hyde at Vacaville, he was suddenly moved back to Soledad and placed in solitary confinement with all his visitor privileges revoked. Rusty Rhodes then made contact with General Khan again and uh, visited prisoners that Khan uh, pointed him towards in Soledad, San Quentin and Vacaville. They all confirmed that this group, and we'll call it the SLA for the sake of ease, they all confirmed that it had indeed been set up by prison guards and people they suspected were FBI agents to gather intelligence on black militants in prison. And they passed along some names of inmates at Vacaville who'd be able to tell um, Rusty more about the relationship between Donald DeFries, the FBI, the LAPD, and the CIA. But every time he went to visit these guys, they were all conveniently either doing time in solitary with visitation rights revoked, are sedated due to sudden uh, psychotic breakdowns. (sighs) So uh, finally, to wrap up, we should also mention that Lake Headley made contact with a former FBI agent called Wayne Lewis a year or so after uh, the safe house shootout. Now, at the time, he was suing the Bureau for uh, unpaid wages, and he made a sworn statement in which he admitted that he'd been in frequent contact with Donald Defries after the kidnapping of Patty Hearst, and he passed along everything he spoke about to the head of the FBI's LA Bureau at the time, uh, and this was Donald L. Gray. Now, Gray made a decision. Uh, according to Lewis, in consultation with guys that Lewis suspected were working for the LAPD and the CIA, uh, he decided that freeze De had gotten out of control and had to be shut down. And then Gray offered Lewis a lucrative deep cover assignment, which was to assume leadership of the SLA after DeFreeze's death. Lewis declined it uh, and was subsequently let go from the FBI, you know, uh, with money going. <clears throat> so, right, this has kind of been one of the most head fucky episodes that I've done in absolutely ages. It's got shades of the Brabant uh story to it <laughs> in a weird way. So, yeah, uh taking in accumulation. I'm hoping that you know we can use this case as a way to like I said to shed some light on uh the murkier parts of the Manson uh family's activities. Now, I'm not optimistic we'll ever get a tenth of the information about everything surrounding the Tate killings that we have about the Symbionese Liberation Army. But I think that we've done a, a decent job of highlighting some of the, the strange similarities and the resonances between the two. And again, I'm I'm still unsure what I actually think was going on with the Manson family. But you know, if it wasn't OP, then the SLA and Donald DeFries offers us uh some understanding of how the people running these things actually think and how far they're willing to go, you know, to achieve their objectives. I don't think I need to belabor that point too much now. Uh, So yeah, this is it. The second to last episode of 2021. Um, I'll be releasing the Christmas Q&A show on Christmas Eve and that'll be a a Patreon only job for the subscribers. So if you want to hang out for an hour or so again this week, And, you know, listen to me shoot the shit about uh, Christmas and the mafia and fuck knows what else. Uh, Then, you know, why not sub and share some love? Um, So until Christmas Eve, and as ever, leave us a rating and review on iTunes if you haven't already. Uh, Urge on friends and loved ones. Thanks for listening. Don't get captured. And have a happy new year. Peace.